Welcome to the only show dedicated to a new way of delivering healthcare. This new model has no name, but let's go ahead and call it direct contracting or digital first care. The new way centers on opting out of the games bigs play with their rigged dice, their crooked game board, and their purchased referees. And if you're looking for a future where everyone wins, that's the doc, the consumer, the employer, and with assured amazing outcomes and measurably lower costs that are ranging up to 60%, you're in the right place. I'm Ron Barshop, your host. I'm glad you're here. Welcome to the new healthcare economy. You know, I love reading Fast Company, but they, like most magazines, get healthcare wrong because they started off their last article about healthcare with this sentence. The three primary stakeholders in healthcare, medical providers, insurance carriers, and patients have opposing goals. The problem with that sentence is it's not true. When you answer this question, sentence one, who are the stakeholders, and you add in insurance, it's like saying, how do you start to repair this old house? By the way, it's termite infested. It has mold, it's haunted, and it has radon readings off the chart. Well, just pass on to the next house. So wrong, Fast Company, three primary stakeholders are the providers, the patients, which I like to call consumers, and employers. It's a true new way next-gen healthcare. Carriers will be an option for employees, but do you really want a high deductible plan costing you tens of thousands to you and your family or free? No deductible, no copay, no premium. So... Employees are migrating away from carriers when given a choice between free and high deductible plans. No shock there. So New Way Care offers a PPO, an HMO, and maybe a third option called DPC or direct contracts. And so those options are giving people pause to leave the old brand. Not everybody selects direct contracting right away until they hear how wonderful it is at the end of the first year. Take some time to migrate away. Well, let's take out the carriers out of that three-person solution of how to fix healthcare. Because any tech solution for the old sick care model that includes these giant carriers, well, it's going to just perpetuate a patchwork solution, meaning you're never going to build a quilt, you're just going to patch a quilt. You can't patch a termite-infested, haunted, moldy property. Just let it rot, crash on its own way. Opt out, move on. Better, start rebuilding fresh brand new primary care and healthcare systems like we're seeing in East Texas. Listen to Rachel Means' interview with me last year. Well, Colorado, look how they're rebuilding that. Listen to my interview with Gorov Dial or with Nextera, Clint Flanagan. If you're a high-tech company, you've already engaged with crossover health or premise health. If you're Apple, you've hired One Medical. If you're a Fortune 100, you've probably hired Medici. There's a one in three chance of that. And if you were Walmart, you've hired 98.6. The list goes on. Proactive MD, which is in Carolina and Indiana. So 25 million people in America, by my count, of just who's been on my show, are sidestepping the bigs to enjoy lower costs, better outcomes, and 40 to 60% lower ER visits, lower hospital admissions, and way shorter hospital stays. So we've got a happier consumer with access to this digital-first preventive care and employers can now tinker with actual retention and attraction and engagement tools. Direct contracting, remember it's free. 
It's a great tool for healthcare. And I speak from four years of personal experience as an employer in this ecosystem. Now, not to mention the pharma costs lower 60 to 80% and overall spending on the healthcare spend, which is usually after labor, the second largest spend is dropping 40 to 60%. And that's not an exaggeration because everybody wins when healthcare is mostly flat and fixed and the movement that is replacing it that has no name yet, it is here to stay and it's growing fast. Is it too good to be true? Just listen to this show. Everybody I mentioned above has been on this show. Travis Christofferson is the author of Curable. And when we talk about today, how we fix healthcare, he has some very interesting ideas in this book. He's a full-time science writer and founder of a cancer charity based in Rapid City, South Dakota, Medical City, USA, right, Travis? Yeah, that's right. Well, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ron. Great to be here. Yeah, I want to get the premise of your book right, because I read it actually twice. I liked it that much. So doctors have this massive burden between the 4,000 procedures and the 6,000 drugs to treat illness. And I'll add, it takes 14 years once evidence-based discoveries flow into the standard of care. So that's your first premise, right? Is they have this massive burden. Yeah, yeah. If you just look at the tenure of healthcare, uh, you know, on the planet, it started very, obviously very simply, and, and doctors had very few treatments to go off. And they, they couldn't envision of what we have today with the, that number of, of drugs, procedures, that just the overall complexity is nothing that, you know, we, we've dealt with. And so the premise is that this, this complexity has gotten so great that we, the system has failed. But I want to jump in because I, I don't want to give it away because the, the punchline is amazing. So that scores or lives are lost needlessly because of the complexity that they're in. And there's a third premise I'm going to jump in with in a second. So you want to talk about that? Yeah, the, yeah. The, the overall inefficiencies because of the complexity. We, we still operate under the sort of the, the ethos that Hippocrates said almost 2,000 years ago that a physician's judgment matters more than any external measurement. And if you look at the, the history of med medical care, that ethos persisted and even persists today, where there, there's so such a vast amount of complexity that doctors are operating under this cloud of uncertainty under most conditions. And the system does very little to help narrow those, you know, those constraints to guide them to the best practices. Well, I, I like your solution, but I have a problem with it. Your solution is, I'll call it Billy Bean, you know, Oakland A style moneyball artificial intelligence and healthcare combined with epigenetics and genomics. Is that sort of your broad brush solution? Yeah, yeah. In the book, I used the example of the Oakland A's because it was such a, you know, it just correlated so well with medicine, where they, they traditionally baseball had talent scouts to pick, pick players. And it was thought that this, this position was, you know, steeped in tradition and acuity of, of sort of instinct. And Billy Bean, just switched to a completely different data-driven data approach. He fired the talent scouts. They thought it was a complete joke that Oakland A's were going to fail. And they used this to find undervalued players, the players that the, the sort of Major League Baseball had cast aside. And then it worked. You know, they had, I think, the third, the third budget from the bottom, um, three times less than that of the New York Yankees. And they started winning. And they've done this every year. I'm sure they've modified their approach. But that's sort of the corollary to the, the, the fix that you're talking about. Well, I, I, I have a problem with it, and I'll talk about it in a second, because there was an article that came out in JAMA Internal Medicine this week that kind of correlates exactly with what you talked about in the book. But before you do, I, I love this 
combination of words you came up with. You're hoping that this AI is going to replace doctor pattern fallibility of human intuition. I love that. Yeah, yeah. When you look at the, the way, and, and this just doesn't apply to doctors, this applies to human beings in general. There's a pattern to irrationality. And in the book, we look, I looked at uh, two psychologists that sort of revolutionized this branch of psychology, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. And they just showed how we have this pattern sort of set of biases and heuristics that we operate under. And, and there's so many examples of this in medicine. And that, that is what, you know, AI is one branch where for right now, it's, of course, it's being incubated, it's new. Where radiology scans, you know, it's showing a clear benefit, but that's just the beginning. Um, and yeah, the, the, the intrusions will come like this more and more. Okay, so what I want to do is I want to read you, which is the most boring thing in the world, this just a paragraph or two from this JAM article, because basically what it says is that um, infections in hospitals is the leading cause of death in hospitals are hospital acquired infections, which you address in your book. But the largest EHR company in America right now is Epic, Epic Cerner, which is the, uh, they're in one out of every four hospital in America. So I'm sure you've heard of Epic. And they just set up a de-identifying system for artificial intelligence and, and algorithms. We'll call it algorithms, not artificial intelligence, to find signs of sepsis, okay? And here's what they found is that when the doctors missed it, so did Epic 93% of the time with their algorithm. How about that? Yeah, yeah, you, and, and like you step back, and of course this is new, and this is the first, you know, this first foray of using AI in that kind of diagnostic capacity, and and there'll be stumbles like this, of course, um, but you know, like hospital-acquired infections, you can you can take two two branches. You can go forward with things like AI to try to identify it early on, or you can take a step back. And I do this in the book. We have these incredibly undervalued low cost sort of procedures that are unglamorous and sort of get, get lost in the system. And just simple hand washing where doctors are shown to be about 80% compliant. And that contributes to the, these 2 million annual hospital acquired infections where there's about 90,000 deaths a year. And another, and the list goes on and on. And, and you can, a good example of this is uh, Brent James in Intermountain Healthcare looked at his EMR and found a huge variation in treatment for the administration of antibiotics before surgery. Some doctors were giving it 48 hours before surgery, some were giving it two hours before surgery, some 24 to 48 hours after surgery. So with his, he, then he looked at the optimal time to give it and the EMR gave him the exact time. There's a dramatic reduction in, in infections when doctors gave it at two hours uh, before surgery. And this had never been done. Doctors just went off instinct or intuition and they was given just around the time of surgery. And so that's an example of where you can look at this blocks of data, narrow down a best practice and save you know, countless lives and drive down costs because if someone gets an infection, obviously that's a, a huge outlay for, for, for uh, medical costs going forward. You also talk about a tool, Gawande, uh, sort of created the master checklist for surgery that really only a very small percentage of the hospitals are using today, but it reduces uh, everything, the cost of surgery, the after cost of surgery, the, the recovery is dramatically faster and you know these infections don't happen. So um, what do you think is holding up healthcare from adopting a simple thing like a checklist? Well, you know, the feeling I get just doing the research, writing the book, talking to doctors, 
is there's a complexity bias in people. People like the glamorous new things, robotic surgery, next generation antibiotics, um, genetically engineered CAR T cancer therapies. And of course the cost of these are astronomical. And this comes at the expense of these incredibly unglamorous low cost things like a surgical checklist. And when the, you institute those, there was a study when he did it in hospitals around the globe and the hospitals that adopted the surgical checklist, the surgical complication medical error went down 47%. So that is way more dramatic than any drug, any procedure that we could come up with. It wouldn't cost probably hundreds of thousands of dollars. So I think it just comes down to you know this uh, internal bias that humans have towards looking for the next best thing at the expense of these very simple, unglamorous things. Let's talk about the poop milkshake. How about that? The, <laughs> yeah. the uh, Catherine Duff was talked. She you told her story. And she found that a fecal transplant, we know already that a fecal transplant, it's called a fecal transplant, will eliminate C. diff for most of the thousands of deaths that take it on because it's basically a miracle cure. It costs 50 bucks. Uh, it's just basically sterilized donor poop and an enema shake. And then um, Catherine Duff spoke at a conference you talked about in the book. There are 150 people there that were all doctors and white coats, researchers. She was the only one that was actually part of the public and they were about to about to take on, I think you said something like 43 pounds worth of paperwork they were going to have to do for investigational trials of milkshake poops that we know work. And she said, stop, <laughs> stop. This is not helping anybody. It works. We know it works. It's, we've lost all sense of proportion here. She started crying and then they just completely, um, took the investigational trials off the table, I believe. Can you tell that story a little bit? Yeah, yeah, that story to me was really highlighted a lot of the sort of the internal biases and problems with healthcare because it, it had been known actually since 1958, there was a surgeon in, in Denver, Ben Iceman, that just had a hunch that, and I think antibiotics were brand new at this time. They just started being mass produced in the early 50s. And so they used them pre-surgically to avoid terrible surgical infections. But he noticed a certain percentage of his patients when they recovered would have dysentery. And it was counterintuitive. But his, his hunch was that antibiotics are wiping out this microbiome. And back then, the microbiome wasn't even fully appreciated. And this would allow for pathogenic bacteria to take over and cause infections. So his hunch was, he called it, I'll try to restore the balance of nature. And so he went and collected uh, poop from the maternity ward because he, he figured that the, you know, the women over there wouldn't have had antibiotics and were healthy. And he gave them to some of these patients that had dysentery from uh, the antibiotics and it was a 100% cure. They all recovered pretty much instantaneously. And this had been known for decades before some doctor in Australia, Brody, actually started applying it to sick patients. Wasn't there some story then, in either the Arab world or Africa where they were eating camel poop? When they had yeah, yeah, that goes. That actually was the first discovery. That goes way back to uh, World War II. There was a terrible outbreak of dysentery with the German troops in North Africa, and um, they flew in microbiologists, chemists, doctors, and, and they couldn't figure out why the local population of Arabs were, was not getting sick. And when they tracked them, they found out that when they were getting sick, and when they did, they'd immediately walk behind a camel, and when it defecated, they'd pick it up and eat it. And so they. Uh, they isolated the organism responsible for that. It was Bacillus subtilis, and they dried it, made it obviously more palatable. And it was, it was remarkably effective at competing, out-competing dysentery. And this is pre-antibiotic era. 
And so that was known for, for vets have known this for a long time. If you talk to vets, they, they've been doing fecal transplants for, for you know, very, very long time. So all this was known. And what happened was the medical community had no way to deal with this. Nobody wants to mix poop in a blender, right? It just, you go to antibiotics first. And so it became the sort of underground do-it-yourself network on Google. And that's where Catherine Duth actually found out how to do it. And the reports are, they were instantaneous cures. And so finally, they did a trial and found out it was 94% effective. And the people in the antibiotic group, head-to-head compared to antibiotics, which are 75% effective on the front line, and then dropped dramatically after that. So every year, patients go through this, end up with end-stage C. diff, and 15,000 people die from this. It's acquired in the hospital almost all the time. And so this incredibly effective cure was there, but the NIH had no idea how to deal with it. They, they kept bringing up these long-term consequences. Maybe if an overweight donor, the, the patient can become overweight, you know, 10 years down the road. And Catherine Duff stood up in the meeting and uh, just said, people are dying. I don't think they care if they're going to gain weight. So the risk-reward ratio was just completely forgotten. They were going to regulate it as an investigational new drug, which eventually would just stop it. And the inertia from the groundswell of people using this to cure themselves is what eventually overturned the system. But it's a, it's a wonderful example of how, you know, we, we just do everything. There, there's so much tradition and inertia. Nobody wants to step outside the bounds and become the first one to be doing this, this crazy procedure. The funny thing is they had this randomized clinical trial. 94% of the people taking the poop enema um, were better and only let me see a third of the people taking the antibiotic got better so they just stopped the trial midstream and switched everybody over to the poop enema because it was crystal clear that it was winning right and they were still going to you know file it under an investigative new drug and and just uh, bog it down in so much paperwork that it wouldn't be available to people but now i think it's it's available in most hospitals it's become mainstream now that's awesome all right so um, investigational new drugs. We're going to talk about that next. There's 6,000 drugs that are approved. There's six molecular pathways I learned to each drug. So they all have six to the power of 6,000, which is countless millions of possibilities of how they can heal us. So you say in the book that we don't tinker enough to repurpose existing drugs like we have with, for example, metformin, which God, gladly I take. One of our previous guests said it's actually got age reversal properties. Um, and he's on the short list for uh, the Nobel Prize in Medicine, so I take metformin every day. But uh, it gets credit for actually saving more from cancer than any other drug in America, according to Dr. Watson. He's no small fry. Yeah, yeah, that, that's another one of the, the things in the book there, these low-cost things that sort of just get left behind. And r- drug repurposing falls right in that, and simply because there's no financial incentive. Like in the case of metformin, it's a generic, it's off-patent, it's a nickel a pill. There is no incentive for anybody to run it through trials to prove that it's got off-label use or efficacy in other disease states beyond type 2 diabetes. And, and even so the there's statins. All, yeah, there's a statin that reduces same. breast cancer by what, almost 40%? Almost 38%, yeah. Yeah, women found to be uh, taking statins near the time of a breast cancer diagnosis have a 38% reduction in, in uh, death rates. Wow. And, but it's a certain kind so, of statin. It's not every statin, right? Right. It's a lipophilic statin. There's two classes. There's hydrophilic and lipophilic. So it's the common ones like a torvastatin and simvastatin. Okay. Um, but yeah, that's that's this is where we, we 
like the Oakland A's find these undervalued players that are dramatically undervalued to their value, under cost of their value. And there's all kinds of things like this in medicine and drug repurposing is a huge part of that. And then what about ketamine? What is ketamine? Yeah, ketamine, that's another one. That, that is a, it's a drug that was originally approved, got approval by the FDA for an anesthesia. And it's found to have a, a really dramatic effect in depression. And it's, it's very well documented. There, there hasn't been a large scale clinical trial, but it's, um, there's, a, there's enough non-traditional data out there, very safe. And the kind of thing that happens is it's, again, it's a generic, so it's very cheap, but the pharmaceutical industry will catch on that, okay, this, got, this has efficacy, how can we get a new patent on it? And so what I think it was Janssen or J&J &J patented one isomer of it. So there's a left-handed version and a right-handed version, and they patented uh, one version and then ran it through trials and got FDA approval. And I think it's, um, well, this is, this is just dramatically more expensive than the generic ketamine. And the generic ketamine may be better, right? The, the version of left and right hand. So that's the kind of thing that just, just drives healthcare costs up when we have these undervalued things that we just don't utilize. Okay, so I, I read from your bio, I'm getting off book now, but I read from your bio that you're an expert on ketones. What the heck are ketones? <laughs> yeah, so ket ketones is a very interesting uh, sort of hybrid switch we have in our bodies. And you've probably heard of the ketogenic diet. Okay, so, so the ketogenic diet is a way of, uh, what, what ketones are is when you go into a fasted state and you have no, you're not intaking carbohydrates, your body will switch to burning fat. And to replace circulating glucose, you'll generate ketone bodies. And they have some very interesting properties with regard to um, uh, diabetes and insulin resistance, which about over half, about 60% of the US population has some degree of insulin resistance. From a primary care perspective, it's one of the um, you know persona non grata of, of of health. It's one of the biggest drivers of chronic disease, and ketone metabolism bypasses all that pathology of insulin resistance. It enters directly into the Krebs cycle, past all those glucose blockades, and restores metabolism. So, it's a very underappreciated um, and has you know tremendous potential for to treat people with in our our chronic disease population. I was a little surprised the last two weeks. I started intermittent fasting 18 hours and you know, off and six hours on, and I lost 10 pounds the last two weeks. I've never lost that much weight that fast in my life. Yeah. Again, low cost, incredibly powerful. Yeah. Intermittent fasting or just restricted eating windows. There's a good study that just came on and alongside insulin resistance, one of the core drivers of this chronic disease epidemic we have is, is chronic inflammation. And when you restrict yourself and do intermittent fasting or an eating window, you reduce the amount of monocytes circulating in your body. Those are the immune cells responsible for inflammation. They drop dramatically. Your gut biome kind of rearranges. So there's some really profound effects just by these simple acts like intermittent fasting and, and restricted eating windows. Okay, so you're also talking on your website about metabolically active cancer treatments. And you even have a foundation for that. What is that all about? That, that goes back to the, my first book, Tripping Over the Truth, which looked at this group of scientists that were really focusing not on somatic mutations, which is where almost all the pharmaceutical research goes towards now, targeted, tar targeted chemotherapies, and looked at the metabolic derangements of cancer cells. And one a prime example of that is when you get a PET scan, what they inject you with is 
radio labeled glucose, so sugar. And it, it, there's, a, there's a huge uptake by cancer cells of the sugar. So they feed off sugar, they alter their metabolism. It's called the Warburg effect. And they suck in sugar and that's what drives our growth. So these group of scientists were claiming that this not only is one of the prime drivers of cancer, but could ultimately be the first cause beyond uh, mutations to DNA. And so that's what this looks at is how to, they're very, again, back to these simple low cost ways of treating cancer. Ketogenic diets are part of the, the therapy because they switch again away from blood glucose towards ketone bodies. And there's a lot of other um, drugs that can be repurposed. Metformin is another one that change the cellular metabolism towards sort of an anti-cancer state. So what is your next book going to be about? Oh man, Ron, I don't know. I, I, I'm still recovering from the last one. <laughs> I, you know, I, it's really easy to get excited about all this stuff. And, you know, the things you talk about with these changing the way you restructure primary care, global calculation, there's just so many good innovative things going on in medicine and healthcare that um, I just keep watching, you know, as, as a journalist, you just watch and find interesting stories and see how this changes. I'm sure I'll get inspired at some point. There's nothing to um, Google when you do what I talked about at the top of the show. I, there is no direct contracting, you know, Googleishness about it. There's nothing, we don't have a name for this movement. We don't have an association. There's no academic studying it, except there's one, I got a call from a guy from Colorado about, about a year ago. I never heard from his study, but um, there's no books written about it. I've, I've written a book called Healthcare is Fixed that taps on the edges about it, but I think you and I need to write a book about this new way that's engulfing America. 25 million people, that's not shabby. And if you do the math, there's at least 25,000 providers providing that care. So uh, this is something important that's changing everything. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, you look at capitalism and you look at these disruptive companies like, like you know, Uber, something as simple as that, or Amazon. You find ways to get people what they need better and cheaper. And you look at the American healthcare system, and there's this one graph that's so telling. If you look at the longevity versus healthcare expenditures, the United States is so far in dead last compared to the rest of the, the developed world. And so it's clear just from that, we are doing something tremendously wrong. We're spending a crazy amount of money for terrible outcomes. So under that scenario, there's a tremendous amount of room for disruptive innovation. And that's what gets me, gets me excited. And you know, just sim something simply is realigning a sentence. The, the fee-for-service model has evolved us into this terrible place. Now, if we just realign incentives, pay doctors a salary like the Mayo Clinic or calculation where they get a lump sum per patient, and then the whole primary care system is incentivized to save money and do better for their patients. So that, that gets me excited. I think there's, I think the path for, there is paths forward. We just have to get past this terrible inertia that we're in right now. I can so nerd out on primary care, but the uh, value-based care model, the capitation model is supposed to be the answer. And I've found that um, the experts at CMS can't answer the question, does it save money? But that somebody like Chen Med, I've had uh, Chris Chen on the show and, and Gordon Chen, I'm sorry, on the show. And it turns out that we have um, full risk models for value-based care and we have non-full risk. Well, only about 5% of the value-based are full risk. And that does save enormous amounts of uh, money, but um, the other models don't. It's just it's more of the same. And um, the head of Blue Cross Blue Shield in Ohio actually was quoted as saying, fee-for-service and value-based care are mostly the same. 
But this direct, con oh. this direct contracting is really a whole new model. And it, because it takes out the PBMs, it takes out the, uh, the big insurance companies, you don't need them when you direct contract with the ecosystem locally. Yeah, just too many middlemen. Yeah, and, and, and you know, th there's other avenues we can look at um, from the system-wide level uh, towards the end the amount of chemotherapy that we give compared to other companies when it's been proven over and over that it does not extend life. And in fact, in the book, we talk about uh, the patients that have more uh, an immersive sort of um, dialogue with patients and or with, yeah, with doctors and nurses and opt out of end-of-life chemotherapy um, actually live two months longer and they have better, you know, the last few months are better with their family. They feel better. So we do these crazy things where they're just incredibly expensive. They have no data justification whatsoever. Have, um, yeah. Prostate cancer is a perfect example. There's, exactly. There's I was about to bring that up. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, this, this is doctors are operating under this cloud of uncertainty all the time where we don't have a lot of trials to compare procedures to each other. And so, you know, people are dying in primary prostate cancer. There's five, typically five treatment options, watch and wait, surgery, and then three different types of radiation that all vary in cost, the most expensive being proton beam, which is about 100,000. And no doctor can tell you which one is better. Is watch and wait better than proton beam or any of the ones in between? There's just no comparative trials. So you, under our fee-for-service system, you can imagine which one gets prescribed more and more now, the most expensive one, which is proton beam. So it's that, that kind of system which encourages that is what, you know, obviously what's broken. It just amazed me. I had a friend who had prostate cancer very early, stage one, and the wife insisted that they go see the best doctor at MD Anderson in Houston who insisted on proton therapy, which is, you know, the, they're going to make a lot of money on that. Um, and he gets credit for billing a lot, and that helps his stature. And so when I said, you know, proton therapy is not proven to be better than wait and do nothing, she jumped on me like I had just attacked, you know, God. It was apple pie and mother, and she was very upset that I brought that up. And I said, I'm just saying, I mean, the evidence is not there that all these therapies are better than doing nothing for stage one. You can die. Many people die with stage one prostate cancer that never spreads. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, people are in an extremely vulnerable position under that. And they look to their oncologist as God at that point. And, and, and so they, they form these automatically biases about the reality of the data. So it's, it, it's an unfortunate situation. Well, um, I always ask my guests two questions at the end of every show, and this has been a great show. Um, how do people find you, Travis, if they want to uh, connect with you? Uh, you, can, I, you can direct message me on Twitter. I'm trying to be a little more active on there. My, I, my foundation has a website, Foundation for Metabolic Cancer Therapies. Those are probably the two best ways. I try to, try to update those as often as I can. Okay. And if you could fly a banner over America with one message, what would that message be? Uh, well, you know, at the end of the book, what it really drilled down to is, is um, what are the, epidemiologically, what are the most important factors for longevity and a good life? And it, it comes, it, most people don't know, most people assume genetics is a primary driver of health, healthy, long life. And it's not, it's 80% of it is life events, nurture, the nurture part of the equation. And so the, the, um, the biggest of that within the nurture are 
social, your, your social connectedness. So the people you really count on close relationships. And the second biggest is social integration. So, you know, chatting with people, um, chatting with the mailman, going to the gym and talking to people, just your amount of social integration throughout the day. And so in America now we're in such silos and uh, I think loneliness is a hugely caustic thing for people's health and happiness. So the banner would be just simply get out and talk to people, live your life and, and you know, be part of the community. Great, great prescription for change. Travis, great book. Like I said, I read it twice. It was that good. And I uh, look forward to your next one. Thanks, Ron. Very much appreciated. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, Help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.